So the work I'm going to talk about is joint with a number of people, including Ray Dolan, Mark, who's at London, Mark Guitart uh, Massip, who's in uh, the Karolinska, Quentin Hughes, who's in Zurich, Reed Montague, um, who's in um, uh, uh, London and also in Virginia Tech, and John Reuser, actually, who should really be giving this talk, but he's on sabbatical in, um, in, in uh, Japan and uh, um, Jerusalem at the moment. And so uh, I think I'm, I'm really the understudy, so apologies for that. And in fact, in a sense, this talk is really a, a, really a footnote, a sort of Bayesian footnote to Essie's talk from uh, yesterday, which I hope you'll see as we go through the, uh, the course of this uh, description. So the, my plan is to talk a bit about computational psychiatry and talk about the way that we in the computational field look at the sort of multi-level issues that uh, Essie talked about, um, the sort of some of the multi-level questions that come up here. And for that, I'll be referring to David Moore's levels of analysis, how to understand uh, uh, systems from a computational point of view. I'll then talk a bit about that in the context of Bayesian decision theory, and then try and use that to make some of the, con the, the, the contacts that we're seeing again in Essie's talk, and see if that the whole of this collection of um, workshops I understand to do with the sort of understanding links between biological, psychological, and sort of social aspects, and how they relate, how we can relate them through the context of Bayesian decision theory. And then I want to say a word about um, uh, something actually Essie referred to right at the end of her in, in the question and answer session yesterday, which is ways in this Bayesian decision theory context we can understand um, uh, subjects as active observers, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're people that are creating uh, the environments that they're actually part of. And the way that then, then that, that has been looked at very nicely through these issues of gene-environment correlation that Essie that, uh, talked about yesterday, and I think will be a focus of much of the work today. Okay, so computational psych psychiatry, the sort of, uh, the sort of uh, a way of looking at a set of, um, of phenomena that we're trying to understand in a number of different ways. And particularly, we're trying to think about dysfunction through the lens of function. Again, something Essie referred to in her, in her talk yesterday. By thinking about the sort of the ecological reason why, why certain um, pieces of decision making happen in the way they do, um, gives us a hint as to the ways that they can break down, the ways that they can be adapted in certain environments, set to particular um, uh, values. You know, we'll talk about a number of different constructs inside decision theory to think about how that could work. And therefore, the way they can break down in when then then put into environments which, to which they're not suited. And I'll try and give a couple of examples of that, again, relating to these gene environment correlations. So essentially, subjects have to choose in a changing and partially known environment. So these are fantastically computationally complicated things to do. And so we have a number of different heuristics and um, approximations that we, and indeed computers and anything, would need to have in order to perform well in those environments. And sometimes those heuristics are good, and sometimes those heuristics are bad. And by thinking about how they can fail, we can understand some of the dysfunction that we can then see in certain circumstances. So David Moore was a, a sort of computational neuroscientist in a way, one of the first ones, and he had this notion, or he had one of the set of notions really about how to think about multiple levels of analysis when trying to understand a neural system. And he encouraged us to think at these, at least at these three different levels. So a sort of computational level, which sort of links nice, <coughs> nicely to ethology, which we're really just trying to provide crisp characterizations of what the problem is trying to be solved and the logic of the solution. So here, this is one of those sort of characterizations that we'll then flesh out um, over the course of the, the next couple of slides. He then encourages us to think about what sort of algorithms we might have, which then links nicely to the psychological aspects of, of behavior we can see. And that's really a sort of effective procedure for, for realizing the solution that's been identified. And this is important because there are many different algorithms for achieving ostensibly the same goal. 
those algorithms work well and poorly in different circumstances and different environments. And, and they work well as a function of how much experience they have, how much time you have to do the computation. And so we'll see that the brain incorporates more than one of these algorithms, and that means that then, you know, depending which algorithm gets selected, that itself is an interesting choice problem um, for, uh, that has to be solved too. We'll see different sorts of behavior come out. And that's the, then people are, uh, are starting to try and uh, design tasks which reveal people have biases for using one sort of environment, one sort of algorithm compared to another one. And that then has consequences for the behavior that gets realized. And then the implementation then is the neuroscience uh, level where we can then think about the neurobiological realization of these algorithms. And so thinking at all these levels and uh, trying to uh, derive constraints from one, at one level from, from phenomena we can see at other levels then is really what's, what the, 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 the whole course of, in a sense, computational neuroscience is. And then the psychiatry aspect, psychiatric aspect of that is thinking about how these can break in these myriad different ways. And then we can think about things like equifinality and multifinality as being um, the consequences of uh, aspects, for instance, you can have many different uh, uh, flaws which lead to the same underlying uh, phenomenon that you can see, which is then this key equifinality, which I think uh, I can talk about uh, um, during the talk. Okay, so Bayesian decision theory. Um, so formally, it's very simple. So I'll just go through it in, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an example, which I'll then try and uh, use a couple of times during the talk. Um, so really, we have not very much states, so what state of the world there is, um, actions, so choices we can make or decisions, and some notion of utility, so there's some notion of worth of, a, of, of, of an action. So for instance, here's very simple, this is my, my uh, sadly best rendition of a little two-arm bandit problem. So here you have a couple of choices, these are supposed to be little bandit machines, not very uh, flashy, not very up to Las Vegas standard, I'm afraid. Um, so you can choose the, uh, either the one on the left or the one on the right. And then, it, it, and then what happens as a result of choosing that? Well, in this instance, I've designed a little task in which actually one of two things happens, but you, in neither case do you get a reward immediately. So in fact, all that happens is the state changes. So a state here is defined by which choices you have access to, these two blue choices. Then as a result of that, choosing this one, for instance, then you get either a choice between these green choices or these red choices. And there's some, in this case, it may be probabilistic. It might be a, there might be a, a stochastic um, transition from one action to the next. You don't live in a world which is completely deterministic. So here, maybe it's 70% of the time, if you choose this uh, cyan option, you get to the green one. 30% of the time, you maybe get to the red one. Um, then maybe you get the green one in this case, you make another choice, and then we get some, you get a reward, some utility. So the point about this is this is not a realistic problem that we face in our everyday lives, or we, most of us, we're not, uh, not uh, inveterate gamblers, but at least we are, it's supposed to characterize abstractly some of the sorts of things that go into, into what it would mean to choose in this, in this sort of context. And you're gonna to want to choose the right, the correct action at these different states in order to try and maximize the utility, maximize the worth of what you get, and then the issue of what counts as worth we'll have to discuss uh, during this talk. So one possibility is it's probabilistic. And so here we might also have, if you've chosen this one instead, maybe this one, the 70% of the time goes here, and 30% of the time goes here instead. So we have opposite choices here. Of course, it could be that there's some Machiavellian agent, which then, so here, Kevin Spacey, is actually influencing what happens as a result of your choices. So you might be in an environment where instead of it just being a you know, random flip of, a, of, a, of the, 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 the chances of nature, there's something else which is intervening, um, either changing the probabilities or maybe changing the, the rewards that you get. And so you're not gonna have to act in the context of an environment which may be partly you know, cooperative or partly competitive. 
slightly Machiavellian. So the choice is, so what should you do? Well, um, whatever the circumstances, you should try and pick the action which maximizes the expected long-run utility. So expected means what you can, uh, so you're trying to integrate all the possibilities according to their probabilities, where those properties are determined either by random chance or by what you know about the agents who might otherwise maliciously, malevolently influence them. And then we're interested in long-run utility. You're making a choice here. You don't get any immediate utility for that. You only get utility later, in this case, after just one more choice. But we are often in environments where the choices we make, you know, go to graduate school, for instance, don't pay off with a wonderful PhD for you know, three years, four years, or, or longer. And so in that case, we are, have to think about a very long-run consequences of our immediate actions. And that is really why the computational uh, cost of these things becomes so extreme. Okay, so, um, so, so what does Bayesian decision theory have? Well, we have the problem, so we can define the problem. So here I gave you this problem with states and actions and so forth. And so typically we have some set of prior expectations. We might not come knowing that this is what the structure is. You just see this choice. You, have to, you, see these, the, you might see, just start off seeing this blue choice. And you say, well, I've never tried either of these two actions before. Let me try it and see what happens. So that, you might have some prior expectations about what could happen there. It might be you have, so likelihoods are the way that data tell you about the underlying state. So maybe I make you make these choices where it's, it's a bit obscure whether you're in the blue or the red or the green choices. So you're going to have to use data, acquire information from the environment. And again, if we're active observers, we have to make those, we can, we, maybe we choose to wait a bit longer to see, to hope that we get more clear information um, so we have priors, we have likelihoods, affordances, what actions we can do. Here, I made it very simple. There are only two bandits, right? But maybe, you know, the, 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 um, the subject could instead uh, try and reprogram the computer and hack my code and get all the money for themselves anyway. So there may be other affordances which are not immediately obvious. And in, in unstructured environments, that's particularly important. And then utilities, where here I made it be money. But of course, utility is a very complicated uh, structure itself. What really counts as being worth something to somebody in a given circumstance itself is very context-dependent and can, can change. So then what are the solutions do we have? Well, um, there are a number of different underlying problems that I haven't got time to go into in all their, all their detail. But one part of the solution is to do state inference. If you're unsure about what state you're in, for instance, then you might want to collect more information. So in that case, you're having to do state inference, which really is integrating prior information together with likelihood information. Something else you have is um, then um, you have a, a number of ways of making choices based on the inferences that you make and, the, and what you've already learned. And so in particular, one very important thing that, that, that we are coming to understand more about is the um, part battle, part, um, part interaction between pre-programmed choice and learned choice. So to illustrate that, I'll give you one of my favorite experiments, who may be familiar with this, is uh, by Hirschberger called Chicken in a Looking Glass World. So here, the, uh, he had a chicken, and this is uh, reliably informed by Google Images. That's a chicken feeder, where it looks like a beheaded civil servant. Um, <laughs> and the rules of um, Hirschberger's game were, if uh, the, the, the chicken and the, uh, there was like a, almost like a treadmill. If the chicken ran towards the feeder, the feeder ran away at twice the speed. If the chicken ran away from the feeder, then the feeder ran towards him at twice the speed. So the way this hapless chicken should get fed is by running as fast as he can away from his source of food. So the poor chickens couldn't learn that. And I mean, this is you know, unfortunate for the chicken, but what's really happening is that we're compete we're, there are two things uh, that are competing, really. So the chickens don't come knowing, born knowing that you know, beheaded civil servants provide them with food. They learn that based on experience. 
Having learned that, you might think that they could, um, they could then learn an arbitrary action, right, like pressing a, one of these, you know, choosing one of these bandits in order to get fed. But in this case, the arbitrary action in, requires running away from the source of food. But in fact, they have this pre-programmed mechanism which says it's a, it's a good idea to um, engage and approach your sources of food. And in this case, it's fatal for the chicken's ability to get the food. He doesn't get it. And so I think often we're thinking about pre-programmed choice, largely actually in the context, instead of, in, instead of the context, the appetitive context here. But in the aversive context, it's great that we don't have to uh, learn for ourselves the set of actions that we should do in the face of mortal threats. And indeed, we have structures, this is the periactodactyl gray, a structure which has a detailed program, actually a programming, so a detailed uh, topographically mapped set of defensive behaviors, species-specific defensive behaviors, which tell us what to do in the face of certain sorts of threats. So as you can imagine, if you're living in, a, in an environment we have a, where threats are around or where thresholds to threats are set, for instance, by maladaptive early experience, then these pre-programmed mechanisms take over. They're very important. They should be there because we can't afford to learn for ourselves what to do. And so by competing then with the sorts of learned choices, where here we're learning based on the utilities that we can provide during our, um, during, uh, our, our online experience, then we can see that there's an interesting battle of, well, how do you value the pre-programming, you know, you know, evolutionary pre-programming, you know, a few hundred million years over various species, versus you know, 20 minutes in the, in your, in, in, or in, even a number of sessions in a, in, a, in a context of a therapeutic interaction. And so that battle is, is an interesting um, un, a battle that you don't, obviously, you know, understanding what the parameters of that are quite tough. Then we have different, these, what I refer to as these different mechanisms for, um, for computing what to do um, in these sorts of environments. And so one way of thinking about that is there's a sort of battle between what you might think of as a sort of Ptolemaian notion, so a cognitive map notion of what to do, versus a Thorndikean notion of what to do. So to illustrate that, in this sort of task, you can imagine what happens if you took this action you got to the unlikely state. So here, this 30% choice here. You got, um, and you chose this action, you got a big reward you hadn't seen before. So what Thorndike says basically is, um, repeat the things that were valuable in the past. So if I now give you another choice here, you might think, well, I chose this guy, which means that, um, and I got a big reward, so I'm gonna choose it again, more likely. Um, so what this shows is, as a, as a, um, this is a measure of like stay property, means the property you repeat the action you do here, you might expect it to be high if you were rewarded for doing this action, and low if you are not rewarded for this action, independently of whether you were rewarded through the likely path or the unlikely path. On the other hand, if you were a, um, a cognitive map aficionado, like uh, Tolman, then you might think, well, hang on, um, sure, I got rewarded here, but if I wanted to have a higher chance of having this green choice next time, I would be better off choosing the other action, this cyan action, because this has 70% chance of going to the green box whereas this guy only has 30% chance of going there. Which means that if I, even though, so paradoxically, even though you chose this action, by getting a big reward here, what you should actually do next time is to choose the cyan option rather than the blue option. So Nathaniel Dorr designed this task to, to elicit exactly this behavior. And so now we, see an, we might expect an interaction between whether you got rewarded or not for the action ultimately at the end, and whether the transition was the common transition, this one here, or the rare transition, this one here. And so that interaction is what you expect if you were doing a sort of Tolmanian type estimation. Um, what you see in data is a mix of the two. And indeed, you look at individual subjects, the evidence seems to be that they are also, they, they adopt, they, they combine influences from both this model-based and model, 
uh, the sort of Ptolemaian, which we call model-based, and Thorndikean model-free um, processes of making choices. We know from animal work that there are separate, partially separate neural systems which underlie these choices, which you can switch on and switch off by doing um, reversible uh, lesions in, in uh, animal studies. So we have these mechanisms. Now they have different properties. The model-based mechanism, this one here, is very flexible. If I, if I tell you that you know, the pound is now worth nothing because of, the, uh, because of Brexit, roughly speaking true, then um, that might change your mind about, and whereas you know, maybe euros came out of this box and pounds came off here. We change the exchange rate between the pound and the euro. The model-based system can instantly take that into account and decide what to do. The model-free system, the Thorndike-in thing, is just learning from its rewards. So if in the past pounds used to be valuable, before June, then um, it will happily uh, go on thinking that pounds are valuable until it experiences the catastrophe of Brexit. Um, and so whereas the model-based system can instantly change its mind by, by, on the basis of new information. So there's this flexibility effect which the model-based system has. On the other hand, the model-based system requires this prospective evaluation of states. It has to think, well, I go here, if I wanted to get here, I should choose this action instead. And so then there's a competition for how much computation it takes. And that battle between, um, between flexibility and computation is then a reason why you might want to have both these systems. And it, you might think that, indeed, Nathaniel has collected evidence, or Claire Gillen in his lab collected evidence that different uh, conditions might be associated with different... Uh, um, so, in fact, uh, Gillen's very interested in compulsivity, arguing that in compulsivity you have an over-dependence uh, um, um, uh, over on this reinforcement-like mechanism, the Thorndikean mechanism, over the model-based mechanism. Um, okay, so that's the problem, the solution. Then learning here, then, we should, uh, is, is involved in uh, how we go about updating our priors based on experience. So the idea here is these priors are not, you know, not, they're not, they're never, they, they, they change the result of the experience that, you, that, that we receive. And so over the course of um, a lifetime, you're receiving many experiences and those things you're using to essentially generate what you might think of as being empirical priors. And they will change your attitude to the problems that you uh, Okay, so that's basic decision theory, how it relates to this. So then how can it go wrong? So I think it's nice to split it up into, uh, we've tried to split it up into sort of three different um, uh, categories again. So you'd be solving the wrong problem, so that, that that could be that your aspects of the priors, likelihoods, affordances, utilities, that's what defines the problems. Those could be wrong. If you're anhedonic, so things that used to be um, valuable to you are no longer valuable, that will change the behavior that you're willing to do, change the vigor of your behavior and the choices you make too. Um, you can be solving the right problem, but doing inference incorrectly, right? So, as I said, inference is a complicated uh, thing to do here. So you could have, there could be sort of frank problems. You could have fallacious precision. So you think about what you, the way that likelihoods are tied to states, you could have something go, go wrong with that. So a number of people have thought about that in the context of things like jumping to conclusions in schizophrenia or in, in uh, paranoia. You could have too much, uh, you could have uh, too much reliance on this inflexible mechanism. That's the Thorndikean evaluation. That's the compulsivity argument that Gillen is making. You could have an over-reliance on pre-programming. So you could be like the chicken, the hapless chicken. Um, and so therefore not adaptive to, to information you found out uh, subsequently. Um, these all lead to different sorts of behavior in different circumstances. They can be, uh, you know, we should be able to wink on out which of them is, is responsible by designing tasks which try and elicit uh, an understanding of what has gone wrong, but they are very different in terms of you know, what, the, what the basis of them is, and also from a therapeutic point of view, what you, what you might try and do. 
then you could be solving the right problem correctly, but in an environment which is mismatched. And again, this is very much what Essie talked about yesterday. So the examples I want to give from here are, are going to talk about learned helplessness. But also we heard in, in, um, in Essie's talk about the Aslin's marshmallows, there the notion is about discounting, uh, how we discount the future, it comes from a notion of consistency or inconsistency in terms of whether the experimenter was willing to, you know, was actually a, a trustworthy uh, person or not. And so here, by manipulating that, we saw we manipulated whether subjects were willing to wait for their marshmallows. One way of thinking about that is that we're changing our notion of discounting by changing the notion of, in, of consistency. So here, this, this, the idea behind the, the, the work that was referred to is that the subjects are, doing the right, are solving the right problem correctly, but the environment is then this unfortunate environment where experiments are, 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 are evil, evilly uh, un, unreasonable. And so in that case, it's actually the correct thing to do is to eat your marshmallow because you don't think the, the bigger marshmallows are coming later. Um, okay, so let me um, uh, give just a couple of examples um, uh, of, this, uh, of this construct um, in uh, the context, one context of uh, le um, uh, learned helplessness, the other in the context of irritability. So learned helplessness, as many of you will know, is, very, is a paradigm you know, which are often used in uh, animals where you, it goes like this. You have a set of, you have really two, two key groups of rats, master rats and yoke controlled. Master rats receive a small electric shock unless they do an action, in this case maybe rotate this wheel, in which case the shock gets switched off. The yoke controls receive an exact copy of the shocks the master rat gets. They, have, they might have the wheel in the environment, they can do all sorts of things, they just can't, it just doesn't have any effect on the shock. Then maybe, then a set of you know, really controlled rats are never affected at all. Then typically you transfer the rats into another environment and then you ask whether they're willing to do various sorts of actions. Will they try to explore the environment? If they're in a pool of water, will they try and swim to escape and so forth? And what you traditionally see is that the master rats look like rats that have never been influenced in this environment. Right? So they just ignore the, 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 the effects. Whereas the yoke controls, even though they've received just the same shocks as the master rats, refuse to try and explore or escape or do anything like that in the environment. And so here we're, we're, we're transferring to a new task, either for reward or for punishment in the, in the new environment. Um, so we're interested in trying to uh, characterize this in a slightly more formal way. Um, and so if you have a prior, thinking about this, a prior in terms of a lack of control, so you don't think you can control it, it means you think that rewards, even if you get them, you think, well, they're not going to be able to get them in the future. They're sort of unattainable in the future, which means you're setting yourself up for failure or disappointment. Punishments are unavoidable, the flip side of control. So that means you're going to get frustrated. And in a sense, all actions look indifferent because you, know, you don't think that there's something you, you see good here is going to be good in the future as well. So you might have no reason to explore. So one very simple construct of this is we used a version, we, used, we looked at this in the context of entropy. So we said maybe one notion of lateral control is when you do an action, the things that happen as a consequence of that action are very variable, which means that next time you do it, something different might happen. So therefore, you don't think you can rely, you can rely on that action as of having the same consequence next. So here's one way of thinking about that. So again, here's back to a, the, just the two-armed bandit problem, just the simple one, just the, like the bottom states of that case. And imagine that we've taken, you know, there are, uh, we've taken this action, um, uh, we've tried it five times, and we're getting, uh, you know, either one, the two, you know, between one pound and five pounds, let's say, are available to us. And twice when we took it, we got two pounds. Three times we got, um, uh, uh, we got four pounds from that action. Then I give you another choice and ask, well, now, you know, you have these two bandits. What are you going to do? Are you going to pull this blue one or this pink one? Well, the choice depends on a number of different things. The first thing you might think is, well, what do I think the value is of the blue one? At least I have some data about the blue one. You know, what do I think it's actually worth? 
And so now it depends on your notion of control, right? So if you, so here, remember, control is like entropy. So high control means low entropy, means we don't expect to have very many outcomes, which means that in this case, already seeing these two different outcomes, the two pounds and the four pounds, is already disturbing enough. And so on the high control case, you think almost all the posterior probability, almost all the expectation you have for pressing this blue bandit is concentrated on the two pounds and four pounds. Whereas if you're in a low control case, even though you saw this one twice and this one three times, you still think you have a reasonable chance of seeing the other, the other bandit. So that's what we know about the blue bandit. What do we know about the magenta bandit or the worker? We know nothing about the magenta bandit. We've never tried it before. But maybe on average we think it's worth three pounds, which is just a little bit less than the average value in either the high or the low control case of this blue bandit. But whether you're willing to press it or not is a function of two things. The controllability, so whether you're in a high control or a low control, and how many future times you expect to be able to exploit this information. So if you only have one more choice, then there's no, for instance, you, you have no reason to explore this in order to see if it's any good, because if you found it was good, you couldn't use it in the future anyway. But if you have more choices and you found it was good, then you could just exploit it in the future. But that's only worthwhile if you have high control, which means if you find it's good, then you can exploit it and get the benefit of exploiting it many times in the future. And that benefit comes because you find it's good now, you expect it to be good in the next trial, the trial after that, and the trial after that. And so what this shows is the relative worth of choosing which machine as a function of how many more times you're going to explore. And you can see that if you have high control, then, it's, then if you have more than one choice left, so two, three, or four, five, you pretty much choose the pink machine. If you have low control, you choose the gray machine. And I think this is relevant to the issue about um, active um, gene environment correlations, because essentially the uh, subject here, or our, our choice between these bandits, is making an active choice between two environments. Right? Do I, an environment in which I just carry on doing the same thing I was doing before, or an environment which I might explore and find out that this, this pink guy is actually better? And so, but um, the active, as an active observer, you have no reason to go and explore the new, um, the, the new choice if your prior says, well, I think I'm in a low control case, which means I don't think I can exploit that information in the future. And that means that you therefore will not discover that, you won't be in a position to discover that there are actually better opportunities out there in a sense. You have this refusal to explore. You put yourself in an environment where the information is not available. And that's the normative choice. You've done the right thing, the correct thing, based on your current priors. So your prior, which may be set by previous experience, puts you in a position in which you don't go and find that the, the, that the world contains other Sorry. doesn't contain other other uh, um, other other things. Uh, that's not a good thing to explore. Um, okay, so we can think about that actually in terms of. So you could then say, well, here I just did it in terms of entropy um, as being that. But we could actually derive um, some similar aspects of problems with um, with exploration by changing priors, by changing utilities if the work isn't so good, by changing aspects of inference as well. So this notion of equifinality, the same effect we don't explore from many different underlying problems which we would have to fix in different ways. You also can think about multifinality if you have the same, uh, uh, same set of priors. But if, for instance, you discover, so you're, you're, you're invested with information based on passive observation that the world actually contains more, more advantages than you thought it did, then you will have different consequences. It will be worth your while exploring because without having to do anything yourself, you discovered that the world actually contained better things than you thought. So you can have both equifinality and multifinality out of this sort of construct. Um, how am I doing on time? We're out of time. Uh, we started a little bit late. 
Okay, I'll just give a very brief word about uh, evocative interactions. So you can do the same thing to, to think about evocative interactions, where it's about the environmental response. Um, and in fact, I think we can, maybe we can talk uh, over the course of the day about, about the, the, the difference between active and evocative. So we did a, a construct, um, it's a slightly complicated task, which I, I haven't really got time to go into in, all de in great detail. But the idea is that in these, one of these bandit-like tasks, instead of having, you know, we have the, the potentially Machiavellian observer um, uh, who can influence what happens. So we have a task in which we have two players, an investor and a trustee. And in this game, the sort of investor is in control and can decide whether or not the trustee has any, um, any uh, uh, reward. But also, but the trustee can try and coax the investor to try and persuade him to um, invest by being a sort of a good quality trustee, um, which means essentially returning lots of money. And the issue comes up in this, sort of, in this sort of case, where we look at, so here we do this many rounds in a row, like 10 rounds in a row, in which the investor keeps on having a chance of investing, and the trustee keeps on having a chance of returning something to the investor to persuade the investor that, he's a, that he or she is a, uh, is a trust, trustworthy uh, person. And the issue that we came up, uh, we, that we looked at here, which relates to the evocative um, correlations, is to ask the question, which is, imagine that we have investors and trustees, which, are the, which are, essentially have the same underlying um, uh, construct, which is to do with essentially a fun notion of irritability. So here, we think of irritability, for instance, if the investor makes a prediction about how much the trustee should return to him, and the trustee returns less than that, then the investor gets a little bit irritated. If the investor gets irritated, that means that then they refuse to cooperate, because the investor is sort of in charge of this game. So the question comes up, if the trustee knows, is aware of the possibility of the irritability of the investor, then how does the trustee change their actions in, in the light of that information? And the idea is, of course, if the trustee knows the investor might be irritable, then it's a very bad idea for the trustee to excite that irritation by essentially defecting, by returning less than the investor had. So you could have an irritable trustee. The trustee himself could be irritable, or herself could be irritable. But nevertheless, by knowing that the investor might be irritable, then the trustee won't try to elicit that sort of behavior. The trustee doesn't know that, isn't aware of this possibility of irritation, even they're irritable themselves, then they will defect on the investor. They won't necessarily return what the investor expects. And then cooperation between the investor and the trustee can completely break down. So here, the trustee has evoked in the investor a sort of behavior, a catastrophic failure of investment, essentially, as a result of not being aware of the possibility of the of the um, investor's irritation. So, um, uh, as I haven't unfortunately got time, but what we, what, what we would do is look at how that, um, that, that leads to the behavior. Okay, so Bayesian decision theory links biology, psychology, and the environment because the priors could get set by the environment, the psychological aspect of you know, these multiple mechanisms for doing decision making, and then the biology of it, for instance, the, the, the way that the, the learning works or the way that the, 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 the computations work then is controlled by the biology. And we talked about you get both rational and irrational irrationalities of behavior through this. We talked about how we could have, the, we could be solving the wrong problem, we could do, solve the right problem incorrectly, or we could have unfortunate environments. We talked a bit about active and evocative gene-environment correlations. Something we haven't talked about, and I think we need to think about more, is uh, the, con sort of the concept of resilience, again, we see in, in Essie's talk, uh, talks um, uh, over the last couple of days. So just one simple thing to think of, you can basically be one very simple way of being resilient in these ways, and I think this is only a, like, really scratching the surface, is either learning too little or too much. If you learn too little, you're not, you're not competent to understand you're in an environment which is bad, then you're not going to, be you're not going to reflect the, uh, the aspects of those bad environments in future environments. So learning too little is good. And then being um, very adaptive, being changing fast is also good because it means that um, even if you're in one environment where things are bad, you always think the next environment could be, could be different. 
and so you're forced to change, which means again you're not going to be um, you're not going to be um, you're not going to be uh, strongly trapped in a bad sort of behaviour because you have this because uh, you can change adapt quickly to a new environment. And it's in the middle where problems you might expect to happen. So I think there are ways to think about resilience, but I think we need to do a lot more work on that. And I'll just leave you with this this last thing to think about uh, relative to um, to Effie's talk from yesterday. So multi-level data across development. So I think Bayesian decision theory offers this nice parameterization of many of these things. We talked a bit about how individuals create their own environment, so this active learning for exploration, and I didn't have much time to talk about, this evocative influence for irritability. The adaptation to circumstances, so it can be both good and bad. So functional adaptation, you know, the priors really are true, and also dysfunctional adaptation, for instance, our Pavlovian chickens, having learned about those, the beheaded civil servants, you then have this bad behavior which prevents you from actually exploiting those environments well. And then latent vulnerabilities come in terms of setting priors, and then at some point in the later, the environment will be such that those priors become relevant, and that's when problems can happen with the behavior you see. So thank you very much.